Um, all right. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name that you would do what is most on your heart this morning and you would magnify Jesus. We ask you, Lord, that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit, weak humans with hard hearts that are really struggle with your ways sometimes. We ask you that you would enable us to receive the Word and to actually have the, a value system for the things that you love and for the thoughts of your heart. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. We ask you to move today. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In Jesus' name. Okay, all right. Well, a um, couple things to warn you about today. Uh, one, it's a two-parter. So we're going to go like 45 minutes, short break, 45 minutes. And uh, the other thing I, I want to say about today is um, this is also probably the most intense thing for me that I've ever taught on. Um it's just, it's, I don't think I've ever taught on anything that has hit me emotionally more than this has while I was writing the notes. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's intense. I, um, for, honestly, for the, for the last month, I have had uh, random conversations with five people around our community or more about the issue of the cross or suffering. And to be honest with you, this teaching had been planned for the last six months already. I knew that in June I was going to be teaching on this. So it's not just an answer to all the conversations I've had. It's been planned for a long time. But I also like to say that I really think that, uh, that the Lord is highlighting this for us. So, all right. Let's go to top of page one. Everybody have a copy of the notes? Anybody else need notes? Okay. Oh, thanks, Kelly. Um, if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke 14 for me. Yeah. We're going to go to uh, Luke 14, verse 25. Um now this now he said things that were offensive, but I think that during Jesus' ministry this may have been the most difficult saying that he had. This may have been the most challenging thing that he said, and he actually said it to a group of people and not just to his disciples. Starts off, verse 25, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them. So he turned and he said to the crowds, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, remember, first century Palestine, a Roman province, this isn't the cliche rhetoric that it is now. This is a gruesome, I mean, this is 
they have it in their mind. There were people during Jesus' generation, before Jesus, that were killed in Jerusalem on a cross. It was common. Basically, anytime anybody would rise up, this could fall on him if he touches it. He would, anytime anybody would try to either, um, sometimes thieves to keep, uh, to keep civil order, or revolutionaries who would attempt to overthrow Rome within their province, they would put them on display to make sure order was kept, and they would crucify them on a cross. So when Jesus says, carry your own cross, he's actually referring to, a, um, to one of the Roman practices that they would make you, as the criminal, parade. they would parade you through the streets. And they would make you carry the cross beam to the cross. So you had the vertical beam that was in place, and they would make you carry the cross beam, which is what Jesus, part of his uh, sentence was. And so, knowing this, everybody has the picture. Jesus says, if you want to be... He says it to a whole crowd of people. Now, why are the crowd of people following him? They're not following him. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a lot of why. They're not following him because they're wanting to lay their lives down for this guy. They're following him because he's healing people and because he's probably the Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome. So they're like, okay, we're on board. And he turns. Now they're still thinking Messiah. Of course he is. But the, the Messiah is going, you can't, you can't even follow me. Which basically has implications if I'm the Messiah and I'm going to set up my kingdom. You can't follow me unless, paraphrasing, you take up your own crossbeam. They're like, whoa, that's pretty intense, Jesus. And I, you know, I was thinking as I was writing the notes and this movie came to my mind. Do you guys remember the movie? I think it was from 1990, uh, late 90s. I think it was 99. The Tom Hanks movie called The Green Mile. Do you remember that movie? So it was nicknamed, it was Death Row, and there was a long hallway leading up to the execution room. And the long hallway was lined with ugly green linoleum. And so they nicknamed the name of the hallway the Green Mile. Because if you had to walk the Green Mile, you were going to be executed by the state. And so, in our context, Jesus is telling them, if you want to follow me, you have to walk the green mile. This is normal people. Um, Paragraph F. So, it wasn't just a reference to the crucifixion. He was talking about the trip up to the crucifixion. Carrying your cross was what you did as you were walking to your own execution. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't just follow me now to hear a good message and watch the miracles. You have to follow and imitate me when I'm carrying my cross beam. There are not different levels of discipleship. It is, it's kind of a myth that we made. There's not hardcore Christianity and then American Christianity. There is not. There is taking up your crossbeam. Top of page two. 
then Jesus goes on to explain it with a couple of parables. These are help give us a lot of insight as to why he makes this demand. Because it's not Jesus. You guys know Jesus was very secure in who he was. He didn't have any need to be intense for anybody. You know what I mean? He wasn't. He wasn't. You know, just trying to weed out the weak ones. He was being authentic. This was real, and it was beneficial for the whole crowd to hear this. So, two parables. The first parable is about a man who wants to build a tower. And Jesus says that if he doesn't count the cost of everything that it's going to uh, cost him, then he will get to the end and he won't finish at the end. This is really important. So he says, the reason I'm telling you, you got to take up your cross beam is because you'll be like this guy. And he says, Luke 14, 28. He says, um, for, obviously referencing, he's explaining his demand. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he's not able to finish it, all who observe it will ridicule him saying, this man began to build, and he wasn't able to finish. Okay, so Jesus is explaining that they they were well-meaning. He's addressing the crowd. You guys are well-meaning and wanting to follow me, but I'm warning you, if you don't determine that following me means carrying your crossbeam, then you're going to get later on, at an undisclosed time in the future, and you won't finish with me. The offense will be so great of where you're headed that you won't finish. He said, so I'm telling you now, determine the crossbeam is involved. What's the crossbeam mean? We'll go, we'll go, go into that a little bit more. In a nutshell, we're gonna, the whole second session is going to be very practical. We're going to demystify the issue of suffering. Because the issue of suffering gets put into this giant heap of negativity. And either you like run from it like the plague or you stub your toe and think it's glorifying Jesus. So we want to demystify the issue of suffering because neither one of those are what Jesus is talking about. (coughs) He also said that those who decide to follow him and they disregard his promise that everyone will have tribulation. You guys know that In, in John 16, he tells them, Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, but you're going to have tribulation here. You will have tribulation. That everyone who disregards that will be like a king that's getting ready to go into battle against another king. This is another really intense parable. Because what he says is that you'll get to the end and you'll make a treaty with your enemy at the end of the day. This is intense because of the context that he's telling them this in, what he's talking about. So you guys know, it says, or what king, still speaking of taking up your cross, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000, or else while the other is still far away, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace with his enemy. That's your end. If you don't determine now 
you're, that you're going to take up the crossbeam and you, whatever it looks like, like I said, we'll demystify it, that you say yes to suffering for his sake, whatever it means. If you don't do it, at the end of the day, you'll not only not finish what you started off to do, but you will make a treaty with your enemy. Uh, in paragraph D, if the cross is not a part of our understanding of following Jesus, then we will only follow Him when we have enough money and everyone thinks well of us and our plans are being accomplished. When things are not going the way that we want to, then we will compromise with our enemy, the devil. And even more intense, at the end of the age, there's another expression of that enemy that people will compromise with. But did you know that Satan has a doctrine? You know, we know he's, a, he's the father of lies, but he is not the author of arbitrary lies that he just tailors to everybody. You know that the devil has consistent lies? They're the same. He has a doctrine. There is a doctrine of demons that, doc, that the demons regurgitate from him guys uh in in the uh you know uh in the uh in the the parallel passage of luke 14 is matthew 16 but um so jesus had already uh when you get to matthew 16 on the next page top of page three jesus had already called all the disciples to follow him so he went through, beginning of Ma- uh, Matthew, that's actually Matthew 4, he called them Mark. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So they all come and they're following, but he, they don't yet have all the details of where they're following to. He gives it to them incrementally. He's going to tell them a little bit more where they're following, where they're following. And he gets to Matthew 16, and it's that parallel to Luke 14. And this is the first time that he tells them that he was going to suffer on the cross. And so what's the implication of those who are following him? And they felt it immediately. That they were going to suffer on a cross, potentially. And they were not ready to do it. And um, several of them began to entertain compromise in the moment that he spoke those words for the first time. This is probably, Matthew 16, is probably the first time that Judas began to entertain ideas of betraying him. And even one of the main guys, Peter, was so appalled at where he was following Jesus that he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Listen to Jesus' response. This is intense. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples... Matthew 16, 21 and 23, I'm in. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. But He turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block for me, to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. So what are God's interests? 
It's the cross. Peter didn't understand it, but do you think Jesus was exaggerating? Was he just kind of trying to prove a point with Peter? Like, do you think routinely Jesus just didn't like the attitude of the disciples and he called him Satan? <laughs> you know, just like, man, kind of, anno- kind of annoys me that John is doing that. I'm just going to put him in his place and call him the devil. <laughs> you know, he didn't really have a habit of doing that. He wasn't just, you know, being arbitrary. So why does Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? This is a stumbling block to me. And the issue is that Jesus was familiar with it. Because that's what the devil tempted him with. The devil has consistent lies. And so the devil tells him the very final temptation. And this is what I want you to just get the, the, the gist of the, this demonic doctrine is that you can enter into the glory without the suffering. That is the demonic doctrine. You can enter into the glory with no suffering. And so... Peter had signed up for the glory. He says they're suffering first. And Peter says, no way. And he says, it's the devil. Um, Obviously, this is not what the Bible teaches. But this doctrine... Um, or a top of page or paragraph J. I want to read this whole thing. We must also repent of listening to this doctrine ourselves. Obviously, we don't have to, you know, you don't have to look far to find someone. I was so convicted going through this stuff. I mean, if I can just, I, I mean, one of the things that hit me the most is it is still so difficult for me to read the epistles and read Paul in 1 Corinthians talking about the offense that they had at the cross and think the whole time that they're just offended talking about Jesus cross. He's not just preaching about Jesus cross. That's not why they're offended. He's preaching that that's our way forward. And it's so hard for me. I still want to look at the cross as his thing and not my thing. But we have to repent of listening to this doctrine. Paragraph J, it infiltrated the church in the West like a Trojan horse inside of other doctrines like the pre-tribulation rapture. Which teaches that the church will be taken off the earth before we have to grow through the great tribulation. This is not what the Bible teaches, obviously, but this doctrine and others made it practically irrelevant that we would have to take up our cross because the cross doesn't lead to anywhere. The cross just leads to this arbitrary... I'm being a good boy. If if there's no implication of where the cross leads me to, then it's just, I need to be a better person. I just need to... I just need to get my act together. And so, over the course of, well, ultimately several centuries, but especially the last hundred years in the West, which have been responsible for missionizing most of the... Christianized earth, what we've sent out from this nation has 
infiltrated and infected the nations of the earth, primarily with this doctrine that came from one of my ancestors. He's one of the big funders of this doctrine. And it's not that if you get the timing of the rapture wrong, it's the end of the world. The problem is, is that you don't have anything to anchor the message of the cross on because it doesn't have any implications on your life later. Now we're going to see that the message of the cross was completely anchored to eschatology in the Bible, always. Even for those who may not live through the Great Tribulation. So, in a nutshell, the message of the cross has become practically irrelevant, not only in the West, but in the nations that we've Christianized. Um, In the big missionary movement uh, in China... You know, Corrie ten Boom was a part of it. Corrie ten Boom hung out, actually preached the same message, the, pre, the pre-trib rapture message. Communism took over. And when they began to suffer martyrdom and imprisonment for the gospel, the number of believers, leaders in their churches that fell away, full apostasy, denying Jesus, Because they didn't have anything to anchor the message of the cross on because they were told they weren't going to suffer. And so, you know, Corrie ten Boom devoted the rest of her life to telling the entire, all of Christendom that would listen to her that the pre-tribulation rapture was a doctrine of demons. Go to the end of the age, point three. I need help on time, Lord Jesus. As many of you know, we're about to enter into the most... And when I say about to enter in, maybe five years, maybe 50 years. We're about to enter into the most perilous time in all of human history. The earth is. There's going to be a time of unparalleled pressure on the earth. You guys know Matthew 24. It says, unless those days are cut short, no life would be saved. The days are so intense that unless they were limited... No life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, because he wants the elect to be saved, he's going to cut them short. Top of page four. During this time, there will not just be an increase of natural disasters, but the persecution of the saints will be the most intense and sinister calculated attack in all of church history. Matthew 24. Verse 9 says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Revelation thirteen seven, It was given to him, the man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. In the context, there's only one person that's giving him the authority to do that. God is giving him the authority to do that. Daniel 7 He, or the man of lawlessness, is another name for the Antichrist. We call him the Antichrist, may not be the most biblical definition. He will speak out against the Most High, and he will wear down the saints, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they, the saints, will be given into his hand. Who will give the saints into his hand? God will. For a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment. Again, the time is limited. Time, times, and half time. Look at in the footnotes if you've never studied the book of Daniel. 
that it's an Aramaic word, and it basically time, that word time just means a year. So one year, two years, and half a year, three and a half years. Yeah, three and a half years. Yeah, time. Oh yeah, time, two times, and then half half time. Three and a half years. So they will be given into his hand, time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, the Antichrist. It will be annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be everlasting and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. So the saints are going to be given a kingdom. We know that. But that's after they're given over to be made war against for three and a half years. The Lord is orchestrating for several reasons this crucifixion. But they all share one purpose. The whole drama unfolds at the end of the age so that Jesus will be glorified on the earth. Jesus is seen as beautiful in the midst of tribulation, persecution, and trials when there are normal humans who rejoice in Him rather than clinging to false hopes of comfort, popularity, recognition, and ease. You know, we're going to go over in the second one. We just have to, in the second half, we have to acknowledge there's just something so different about the first century church when they experience persecution and suffering. We, you just you can't read it. The only thing you can do is you can either do what all Western scholars have done and just said, well, that's archaic and it's outdated and it's not relevant to us. And so they're just kind of, they're primitive is why they experience joy when they're suffering. Or you have to go, my gosh, there's something not right with us. There's something we are missing. But look at Paul and Silas. The multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods, and they laid many stripes on them. They threw them into prison, and at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And all the other prisoners were listening. What are the other prisoners thinking? What are you thinking if someone just got beat, someone who's innocent, just got beat? They're whipped, their backs are laid open. Stripes, their backs were laid open and bloody and getting infected as they sat there. And they're singing praises to God. We'll answer that question more later, but we have to see there's something very different going on than what we experience. This time, going back to the end of the age, is going to be so intense that many people around the earth who are presently following Jesus will fall away and abandon the faith. This is not going to be an illusion. It's not going to be the people who showed up on Sunday and were living in gross immorality all week long and not really believers. It's not insincere believers. It's people that are actual believers now. They have to fall away from something. It's real. The pressure of those days will add a significant amount of weight 
to the choices that have to be made in that time. Matthew 9 says, Then they will deliver you over to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. At that time, at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and they will hate one another. Uh, Paul said, writing to encourage the believers in Thessalonica, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter. As if it's from us, as if the day of the Lord or the second coming had already come. Don't be deceived. The second coming is not happening until the apostasy comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed. There will be a falling away before it all, before it all ends. Lord knows that the final generation, there's coming the final test. What I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to give you a framework for understanding suffering so that this is trying to lay a foundation for part two because we have to, we at least have to have a vision to get over our offense at suffering because it's not that suffering only means the end of the age we're going to suffer. Suffering means like, what do I do when the guy cuts me off in the road? It means a lot of stuff. It, it, no, it, I mean, not that that is necessarily anything, but it, but it changed the, the, the fabric of the moral fabric that your brain rests on at the end of the day. Uh, Lord knows that in the final generation, the very top of page 5, there's coming the final tests of the hearts of men. The Lord knows this. He's operating off this premise the outcome of that time will be eternal for men. Right now we're experiencing the day of patience, long-suffering, forbearance, and tolerance of God towards humans. But we cannot afford to interpret His stance right now towards us as indifference or apathy towards sin. We can't look at the way He responds when we live carnal lives and absolutely reject the gospel in most of our lives and imagine that it's because he's indifferent about the issue. Because this is the time. And do you know why this is the time of long-suffering and forbearance on his part? It's because of the wicked. He loves the wicked. He loves the human traffickers. He wants, he doesn't want them all to go to the lake of fire. He loves them. He's waiting for their sake. There's coming a day when a choice to compromise will be final and eternal. You will not take the mark of allegiance to the Antichrist and his kingdom and then change your mind later when it's more convenient. And guys, we have to get left behind out of our brains. We have to get a lot of the garbage we've been fed about the end times I mean, growing up, I wasn't terrified about the end times. I was always like, I knew it was a part of my calling because of that experience I had when I was eight. But I tell you, I, I, I fully expected that one day some dude in you know military garb was going to pin me down and like put a branding on my arm and go, done, <laughs> gotcha. Now you're going to the lake of fire. And that's not what it's like. It doesn't have anything to do with that. You're not going to be tricked into taking the mark of the beast. No, you may be deceived, but you will 
But it will be a calculated decision on your part. It's not like Jesus is going to come back and go, guys, sorry, it was the credit card the whole time. If you have a credit card, because the numbers, if you add up all the numbers on the credit card, they equal 666, you guys are going to the lake of fire. That's not what it's talking about. And the chi- or the chip in your arm that some of us may have been given at birth. Yeah. <laughs> Chrissy could tell us for sure. Cause she, yeah. <laughs> then the third angel, Revelations 14, a third one followed, said with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of the wrath of God. These are ones who were believers one minute, some of them, and who decided to compromise at the wrong time. And they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of His holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. As I know, I know this is really intense and I'm not, I'm not trying to be intense. I'm trying to create a framework for us to understand it so that we can demystify it. So that it can't, we can't always have this taboo subject in our brain. You know, it can't always be this thing that we're terrified to go near because it doesn't mean it's not coming. Uh, point four. Okay, not doing too bad. Only a couple minutes over. In light of this day that's coming, there is a, there is coming a time in light of that day when we could, in a moment of weakness, when we choose to compromise, the consequences are eternal for one decision. In light of that moment, there is coming a time which is the most kind, tender-hearted, and merciful thing that God has done since the cross, in my opinion. In Matthew 24, it's called the beginning of birth pain. And this time will be an increased time of persecution, deception, wars, and natural disaster. So why is that such a good deal? Why is that so kind? Matthew 24, you read, it talks about it and it says, but these things are just the beginning of birth pangs. So the effect of the beginning of birth pangs on the earth will be very similar to the effect of uh, the contractions, the initial contractions when a woman is labored and in labor. That's what Jesus is referencing. And so... Um, I've never been through labor myself, but um, I've been around a couple people that have, <laughs> and and most of them are not real shy about talking about what it was like. So I'm not an expert firsthand, but I have a little bit of understanding. Second hand. So. First, the mindset of a woman feeling them completely changes as soon as they kick in. Um, it doesn't matter what had her attention before the birth pang started. They now have all of her attention. Okay, instinctively, pa- paragraph C, every woman knows two things. Probably more than this, ladies, you can correct me in the, you know, in, the in between time. But... Two things that demand she completely focus on what is happening. And the first thing is that they are progressive in nature. 
She knows that she must focus so that she can emotionally walk through the more challenging things that are coming. The more challenging stages of labor. No. I think he's feeling the intensity of the room and... So, no experienced mother, the bottom of paragraph C, no experienced mother feels the initial contractions of labor and concludes, eh, that wasn't so bad. Right, moms? You never go, eh, that wasn't too bad, I can handle that. Because you know it's going to get worse. Next, she knows that once true labor has started, it will not stop. Not only are the pangs progressive, but once they start on planet Earth, there will be no more hope of going back to our pursuit of the American dream. And this will be such a blessing. As soon as we're rid of the option, then everything changes. If you know, if you kind of just go, man, you know, I really ought to, I really ought to pray more. I'm just not a very solid person. (laughs) I really need to read the Bible more. If that's like your devotional life in God, like most of ours, I need to pray more. I just really need to read the Bible. I just, I'm not very disciplined in my life. I just need to do that. Then it won't happen, right? It just doesn't really happen consistently. Like you'll hear a good message and it'll change for three weeks. And then you go back to... I just need to be a better person. I just need to read the Bible more. It's the same thing. How many of you ever said, I just need to get in shape? I just need to, I need to run. I just, if I just ran, I would feel a lot better. I just need to do that. And then actually ran consistently every day for years. No, it doesn't happen. What if for sure, for sure, for sure, there's no way out of it. You're running a marathon in two months. That I just need to run totally changes. Right? Because you feel it's coming and the way your brain interprets ideas and information that's coming in totally changes. Because you know there's a day coming. That's why... The introduction of these doctrines, not just the pre-tribulation rapture, but it's an easy one to point to, changed all that. We went from, I need to get dialed in because this is serious, to I really need to be a better person and pray more. That would just be really swell if I just prayed more. And if I just knew the Bible, that would be great. It took the marathon away. Uh, very top of the last page, page 6. From the birth pangs all the way through the Great Tribulation, the, go- the Lord is going to use all of these things to make the bride ready for her wedding day. She must be prepared to walk faithfully through the perils of that day and to stand spotless before the bridegroom. The church will be delivered of the love of money and purged from impurity completely before the day of the Lord. I'm speaking corporately now why this has to happen on a corporate level. 
You can read those verses. I view, not picking on Germany, Veronica, but I view historically the Lord has given us a few historic precursors so that we understand what it looks like when some of these things happen. But it's localized. It's localized so that it doesn't take over the whole earth because God's forbearance and His long-suffering. But we have the picture there so that we can look and go, holy cow! And I think the most recent historical precursor that we have, in fact, a lot of scholars think, well, well, never mind, I'm not getting into that. Um, But uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany, we have such an example that we need to look at and understand. I've tried to get accurate numbers, and everybody, of course, everybody gives different numbers on these things. But I've heard up to 90, I've actually heard above 90% at the end of the day, above 90%. But it's fair to say that up to 90% apostasy in Nazi Germany under Hitler at one point. But the reason is really easy. Everybody points to, there's a lot of history books and scholars want to say there's a lot of little fine details. And it's true there are, but at the end of the day, it's only... For one overarching reason. It's that Hitler could give them what they wanted. What they wanted was financial assistance, peace, and safety. If I can give you, if I can fund your building and your church, you won't be persecuted, you won't have hardships, you won't suffer, and you'll have enough money. But you got to sign right here. At the end of the day, that's why they went. Because their value system was more money, more comfort, more ease, no suffering. At the end of the age, the reason people are going to take that mark of allegiance, which won't be a mystery when it comes. It won't be tricky. We'll know what it is. But the reason it's going to happen is the same reason. We love money. We love comfort and ease and we hate suffering. And if somebody can promise us the three good things and no bad thing in a bad moment, guys, how many times do you have even a strong value system that you compromise in in a weak moment? How much stronger does the value system need to be for that time that's coming? So... A lot of the reason for the birth pangs is so that we will be rid of the love of money and our lust and our absolute addiction to entertainment and anything that makes us, that keeps us from suffering. That's basically what, that's what we give all of our life energy to. Anything that makes us feel no suffering. Anything that keeps me from feeling pain, I will give my money, my energy, my time, my effort, my relationships, everything, if I can just have that. And, so amen, let's, let's take a break, <laughs> and uh, we'll get back and uh, try to demystify what that means. Because really, this is just a foundation. I just want to get everybody to go... Okay, I guess I can accept this, but where do we go from here? Uh, Let's do um, 10 minutes.